together we want to welcome you to Still Great Bob. If this is your first time joining us, together we're watching AMC's Mad Men trying to answer the question, is it Still Great Bob? This week we're discussing season three, episode four, The Arrangements, written by Andrew Colville and Matthew Weiner and directed by Michael Uppendahl. This episode originally aired September 6, 2009. Hit movies that fine week in September uh, were at number one, the final, the final destination, Inglorious Bastards at number two, and after that, All About Steve, a movie I forgot about. Does that have Sandra Bullock in it? It does, and Bradley Cooper. And Bradley Cooper. Cooper. God damn it. I'm so happy I forgot about that movie. Hit song that week was a Black Eyed Peas with I Got a Feeling, a song that still haunts me to this day. <laughs> and it's going to continue to haunt this section of the podcast for the foreseeable future. Spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> Matt, how about you tell us what happened in this episode of Mad Men? This week on Mad Men, the gang is reminded of their ever-present fear of death and their anxiety of the everlasting power their families of origins have on their lives. Yeah, it was a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Where to even start? It's it's another kind. I enjoyed this episode. Um, I kind of forgotten a lot about it. Like in, in some ways, it kind of feels like this would be the place in a season where you have that kind of transitional piece from like the kind of first act of the season towards kind of the the middle action and then moving into the finale. Kind of as we we get closer to the actual finale, in episode thirteen. Um. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I really liked it. And it was kind of similar to last week's episode in that each kind of setting or storyline still had that kind of common theme or, or, or thesis statement. So it's all kind of very strongly thematically tied, even though each each kind of storyline setting phase of the episode um, seemingly doesn't have anything to do with each other, but it's all it's all related. I mean, it all comes back to dad stuff, as always. I will say, I will agree, it was a really, really good episode. And it's just funny to me how many things have, like, I always say, like, I don't really remember much from the last time I watched through the show. But it's funny how so many moments are popping up and they were so iconic to me. And I'm always surprised when it comes up. Like, I thought it was sooner in the show or or, or later on in the show. But, you know, like the um, the patio ad, that stuck so strongly in my mind and then when we opened up with this episode talking about highlight i'm like fucking highlight i forgot but i remember all this drama about highlight right. and how how i don't want to say stupid because like i thought it was really it's a really interesting um uh story thing but at the same time I'm like oh my god just so much rubbing my eyes and just a lot of like, oh my god, oh my god, this is a thing that's happening. Okay, this is happening. This is a thing that someone probably really tried to do once upon a time. Melissa, what did you think of the episode? I really liked it. It felt like things were happening in a way mm -hmm. that not episode feels like things are happening. Um when we saw Grandpa Gene salting his ice cream, I was like, that is so blatantly, like, unhealthy that this man's probably going to die in this episode. And then I thought, like, oh, that seems like a lot, even for Mad Men. But nope. Here we are. The ice cream that tasted of oranges. Yeah. Is that, like, a hint? I don't know. Maybe. Did they actually say what, what 
he died from because I know in oh, he already had a stroke by then, right? Or two strokes. They yeah. just say that he collapsed. Mm. I mean, the stroke, the previous strokes could have also caused that too. But yeah. Oh, and again, we have Kiernan Shipka doing her best work. Absolutely, punching I above her uh, class as a child actor, <laughs> dude. Like, I don't want to say she peaked as a child actor, but I mean, she's so much potential is visible here. Like, I really feel like she outacted January Jones in this episode. Like, I really, truly feel that way. I'm totally with you. I wonder if that's what we were thinking back then, too, when it first aired. I feel like we did. They're such reflect, like, they being Sally and Betty are such, such kind of, like, reflections of each other, kind of up to this, this point, and, you know, that their proximity both, you know, as, as being parent and child and, you know, testing out kind of identities and different things and smoking in the mirroring definitely kind of defines their relationship, but especially um, in this, in this episode, as it relates to kind of Gene being the, the center of the Venn diagram for, for both of them right now before he passes. But before we get into that, did we want to start with the goings on at the office with patio and highlight? Yes. Oh, yeah. Definitely. So the first thing that I wanted to kind of get out of the way in in this section of the podcast, and I mean, I don't know how much time we want to spend on it, but I think it's worth mentioning that Peter and his classmate, uh, Harris Cook Jr., the the man who wants to be the the father of Highline in America, um, they have the worst nicknames for each other. Like... Humps. uh, Yeah. Just no thank you. And ho-ho. Humps and ho-ho. Do we know if when Pete was returning his second chip and dip, he ran into someone from school and yeah. they called him Humps? Yeah. Did that person have a terrible nickname or are like Peter and Horace just very unfortunate? I don't I, remember. I don't remember. I feel like that. I think I feel like I remember Pete calling him by an actual name. OK, for sure. I because... s- Go ahead. Well, I was just saying, like, Ho-Ho and Humps are both, like, not great nicknames that maybe signify that they were, like, on a lower tier of, like, social standing Right. than maybe some of their peers. I mean, maybe because Horace makes that comment about Pete, like, not getting girls in college, and I, like, kind of wondered if, like, maybe he was the bully, and so Pete was bringing this ridiculous idea into Sterling Cooper to get back at him. Um, but then he also makes that comment about like how he's like kind of protected him. And I'm like, so are you two just like Tweedledee and Tweedledum of your friend groups? <laughs> You're just like both trying to make this thing work now. <laughs> I like that read. Mm-hmm. I can see it. Yeah, I don't see the kind of character that Horace was as like one of the big guys, you know, that's not like a statement on his size. That's just he doesn't have that personality where he was one of the 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 guys everyone else look up to yeah like the leader of the friend group and Mm -hmm. i mean both of these nicknames are terrible but they're both like kind of proud of them so i feel like that like the joke was maybe on them the whole time right or maybe back then people were just bad at nicknames who knows right also true (laughs) also true (laughs) we don't know (laughs) so i want to talk about don at the office um to just kind of set the set the scene a bit we said 
Boris Jr. wants to come in. He has his his trust fund money, I'm assuming, from his his father, who's a powerful shipping magnate who's who's in tight with Brett Cooper, because that's what capitalists do. They're tight with each other. Um and he wants to be the, as we mentioned before, the the father of Hylai in America and make it America's new national pastime. Um Don knows it's a bad idea or feels it's a bad idea and wants to protect Junior from wasting his his money on, you know, this endeavor to make highlight the new national pastime. I was curious what you both thought of this and where we think it's it's coming from in terms of Don. Because we, we've seen Don's have this this kind of ethical, you know, stance of how he does business and how he relates to people at the office. Um, so I'm curious what you both think about where this desire for Don to protect Junior and, and Junior's money, his inheritance, um, is coming from. See, I don't even see it as trying to protect Horace. It To me, it's just a personal sense of integrity and living up to who he is instead of uh, protecting this incredibly dumb, vulnerable character with a lot of money. Because I don't really see him feeling sorry for someone like him. There's no, like, integrity in doing this. Mm-hmm. And not that, like, I think that Don is, like, the most maybe, like, righteous person. Mm-hmm. But he does enjoy doing good work. Mm-hmm. And this idea is so ridiculous that they know it's not going to be good work. It's going to be money, basically, for jokes. Yeah. And I think that probably rubs him the wrong way. It probably also puts their reputation on the line, too. I mean, Horace says it himself. He says, if High Life fails, it's your guys' fault. Yeah. Because even though the idea is stupid from the jump, like, no one's going to blame Horace Jr. <laughs> when this fails. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting point about, like, like so Don's ethics, but more, a better word would be, like, Don's integrity. Um Big... So it feels even weird to say that he has that. Well, and that's exactly exa- that's exactly where like I'm going with this, right? Because it, there's that whole line that Bert says, I think, back in season one about a man is whatever room he's in, um, mm-hmm. and in this room with me now is like Don Draper, and that's kind of we talked about before how that's Don's whole deal and his different personas and in, in the different rooms and different relationships with different folks, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But why do you both think that? The only area of Don's life that he, not once I'll soften a bit, one of the only areas in Don's life where you can say he acts with some form of integrity is his business life, his office life. Um, why do you both think that is? Less so actual integrity, like Melissa's saying, it's hard to say that he has integrity, or it's more just like his perception of himself as a person with integrity and working ethically in his field he he likes to imagine himself as this person who you know he honored you know someone who honors contracts without actually needing to have a contract someone who is just a person that he's been this whole time he doesn't anything you know the the business deals that he doesn't super believe in some sense of moral superiority it's it's just kind of fits the pattern that i've seen of him at work that even talking it's even the same thing he does when it comes to roger uh and roger you know leaving mona for a younger woman he's like how dare you be this person even though he's exactly that person you know 
yeah, like, how dare you bring it out of the shadows, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, it costs Don nothing emotionally to mm. try to do the right thing at work. Mm-hmm. So he gets to maintain this level of um, a comfortable seat on his high horse, but also give up nothing personally. Right. So then I guess like my follow up would be we so, so then one of the, the next scenes in the show is we see Horace Sr. and he basically gives Sterling Cooper the go ahead to take his son's money. And he expresses Horace Sr. Um, disappointment in, in Junior and saying they, they set that money aside when he was a baby, not knowing who they would raise and how they would raise and, and what kind of a disappointment he is. And then later in the episode, when Horace Jr. does make that comment to, to Don and Pete, when Don finally, one last time, tries to, tries to turn down the work about Sterling Cooper being on the hook for it, um, we find out that Horace Jr. is doing this all seeking the validation that he never got from his father about, you know, yes, I know this is your fortune, not mine, and I'm going to make something of, of this thing that I believe in, and I'm going to gift you a team. So, and that obviously has, you know, concurrent themes running throughout the episode and the other two kind of phases or modes or storylines we're talking about. But do you think that kind of low stakes integrity validation or validation of self is something that Don gets from from the role he plays at Sterling Cooper compared to some of the other roles he and the hats he wears in life? Does Don get something out of acting the way he does at work that he doesn't get from acting that way in other places? Yeah, I'm 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 trying to um like I've I <laughs> without having like time to ponder, my my gut answer is the same as before, which is that he would get the same response acting this way, say in his marriage, but it would be personally harder hmm. for him to do. And I don't necessarily think that Don's like afraid of hard work. I think that he's afraid of like tapping into any of his emotions and having mm-hmm. to share them with someone. And so mm-hmm. it's like doing this same, being this same person all the way around in his marriage would require him to like take off the mask. Yeah. In a way that, so I think it's just like easier. Mm-hmm. I need to be Don Draper, number one. And this is the easiest way for me to do it. And so I can feel really good about it. And if I'm a shitty husband when I go home, I'm a great advertising man. So, <laughs> Plus, this is um, everyone at work already sees him as this kind of guy. Anyways, this like upright kind of person who do his own thing, even if it's not the best for the bottom line, just because he thinks it's right. I mean, at home, everyone already knows that he's a shithead so <laughs> it's a little harder for him to be like i'm gonna make the moral choice or the ethical choice because everyone you know you have betty or anyone else part of his um more personal life being like we 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 know who you are though uh at work though he's that guy you know so matt you kept referring to Don's behavior as protecting Horace, though. Do you ha- do you really, ha- or why do you see it as more protecting Horace as opposed to doing something more self-serving? Yeah, I think it's both. Like, I think most things that Don does are projections of 
the self, right? So I think when he acts about protecting Horace and his, and his his investment, like that is a action based on his own background and like the wealth he didn't have growing up and, you know, him feeling that all he has, well, I was gonna say all he has is his name, but he has someone else's name. Um, but like the importance of that and that where his, his code and his integrity comes in. So he's looking at junior through the lens of self and being like, this kid's messing up. I wouldn't want, I wouldn't like, yeah, I don't know. I, I do think it is more about his self, but like it's, I feel like when, I guess what I'm trying to say is when he, Don, does something like that, it's a manifestation of something he would have liked someone to do for him. And again, I don't think his advice, Don's advice for, or what Don wants or does he even know what he wants? What he thinks he wants um, are always good and always positive. Like again, talking about his advice to to Adam when Adam came back in his life and gave him that shoebox that we see again later in this episode about starting over, run, be fresh, keep running, the the classic Don Draper advice. It's something he's learned or something he wished someone had told him. And I think that's that's why we see him going back to the the box of the pictures that Adam brought him and looking at his his dad and his his stepmother and kind of reflecting on that past because maybe things could be different for for Horace and the way that they weren't for Don. I don't know. It's not very coherent. I apologize. <laughs> no, there's a a lot here, and I guess what we inherit from our fathers. That I mean, obviously, I I do agree that there is definitely something there about um about Horace and his father's approval and what he's inherited financially, if not emotionally, that resonates with Don. I'm clearly working this out as I say the words. Yeah. No, and, and I think, too, like, that's textual to, like, lots of characters in the show, too, because I think there's mm-hmm. shades of, of Pete in that, too, specifically. But, like, I know, like, the... The episode does hit us pretty hard with the dad stuff because a dad does die at the end of the episode. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, I think too, it, it's it's in the context of the episode. It's kind of like both parents at the same at the same time because like, and we'll get in, we can get into it a little bit later and get into now. It doesn't really matter. But that idea of like Betty's relationship with her mom and how her dad is reflecting on who Betty is based on how they reared them together. Horace Senior talks about you know raising junior together like with his partner and like it's madmen so the women are those women are particularly visible and i mean one of them's dead (laughs) in 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 betty's mother but like it hits us really hard with the dad stuff it feels like this is the father's day episode of madman um but at the same time like they i don't think it's just the dads right because i think don's brokenness is also defined by not really feeling like he had a mother growing up and that's where you know we we and i think that that has implications into his relationships with women um Hmm. although his his stepmother was 
She tried. Uh, I mean, I don't. Maybe. She wasn't exactly like Catelyn Stark with Jon Snow. <laughs> but it seemed like, I mean, she tried. She... I think she was, though. Really? I feel I remember her, like, occasionally trying. Not being the best. It was probably more just trying to placate what's-his-face. Well, and, like, I th- Archibald, Archie. And I think, too, in, in fairness, I guess maybe not to hopefully go down this, this side road too, too much, but, like, I don't, I don't think you can blame or indict Abigail for, like, being mad at this, this now, this, 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 product of your husband's infidelity being placed at your doorstep and and your it being assumed your responsibility and being kind of resentful at that but at the same time it's not baby dick's fault um do you guys feel like don may be through the horse's relationship with each other and the pro you know byproduct of um how senior raised junior and everything and how junior came out do you think he may be coming to terms with his own father's let's say emotional limitations as a father no okay (laughs) no there is just just wonder like what what he's seeing in his own not necessarily forgiving him just like understanding it just trying to see what what don's seeing there do you guys find yourself uh starting to sympathize a little with uh, junior by the end when he's talking about building something of his own even though he's using his own father's money compared to his father talking about how like he will never understand what it's like to have to amass to create this 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 thing this fortune that I had to bring about on my own I like want to feel sympathy for him but also I feel like he's being willfully willfully ignorant about how stupid this idea is <laughs> it is like so you stupid. cannot think that this is gonna work i like all the little ways in which they just plant like why it isn't gonna work like when they call the the league those the national highlight something association and they're like america's gonna be so confused by this J. america's gonna be confused by the J. like left left-handed people can't even play it Um, you honestly think that it's going to take over America to the point where we're only drinking Mexican beers and rum? Like, you can't think that that's true. He weaponizes his wealth in class, too, in the way that, like, well, if this doesn't work, it's not that it's a bad idea. It's Sterling Cooper's fault. Like, he, it's interesting in the ways that juniors, folks want to, protect their rep- the reputation as, in, within the capitalist class because his dad is tight with with Bert and stuff like that to like oh we're not gonna like you know take your money we're not shady like that because of some kind of capitalist version of solidarity or something but then in the way too that when faced with someone who is actually truth-telling to him that's saying hey this is a dumb idea he's like oh no if it fails it's it's your fault because I'm untouchable because my advertising budget is three million dollars in 1963 right mm-hmm. so much like most of the men particularly on Mad Men I to answer your question I am conflicted in which yes I do empathize with him as someone who's clearly bad at self-validation and is seeking 
that validation that he's probably never going to get from his his father and you know parents and whatnot but at the same time he is frustrating and kind of the architect of his own demise and probably won't live with the consequences of that because he is wealthy so Mm. his like mediocre white dude confidence was just like a nice little button to me starting to warm up to me and like eh no turns out no uh, it's really funny. I thought that Pete also was like in the similar in a similar position where he's like constantly demanding his father's approval, coming from a similar background with similar probably similar insecurities and everything. But he parades him in front of his buddies at work, being like, "Fatted calf, have at it." Yeah, because I think that Pete thinks that he's like better than Horace in some way. Like he really did make it, and like. He's smart and he's successful and et cetera, et cetera. But it's like, Pete, you were doing the same exact shit not that long ago when you didn't want to share your promotion with Kenny Cosgrove and you threw a fit at your wife about wanting what you want exactly when you want it. So, like, are you really that much better than him? His, like, will his willful ignorance is so fascinating. There was also... <laughs> it's incredible. He should teach classes. <laughs> there was a moment where I kind of felt weirdly happy for Pete, though, because at some point afterwards when Pete's like, did I do great bringing this guy in, this, like, easy target? And Lane actually says to him very genuinely, nicely done, my boy. And he's just, like, beaming. I was like, oh, finally, approval. Speaking of validation from fatherly figures... Yeah. <laughs> Don better watch out because Pete's loyalty is elsewhere mm-hmm. now. <laughs> Lane has a, just a way of saying things. Like, even though he can be fairly business-minded, he does have a way of saying things in a very warm, genuine kind of way. And I forgot how much I loved Lane. I was kind of into, not like into Lane in like a sexual way. Yeah. But I was into him in the meeting with Burt Cooper being like, oh, no, it was it was Don that said we needed to like involve you. I'm like... Look at you not trying to take the credit. Okay. How'd you even get a job here? Because <laughs> he's English. Um, yeah. No, that's that's a good pickup because Bert, or not Bert, um, Doc would have would have taken the credit. He a thousand percent. Doc. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And season one, Peter would have too. Oh, yeah, for sure. And it's nice because it's like Don brought this up, but Don wasn't going to do this. You know, like... When they had the discussion, he was just like, all right, well, there you have it. You know, kind of like, well, I tried. No, and I think to the to the point earlier about low stakes and, like, where you can, you know, exercise integrity, but then there's minimal risk to you. I think that's another good illustration of, of your earlier point. Mm-hmm. I guess before we kind of, you know, shift to the, the roommate search and then the, the Draper Hofstad home front, um, I did just want to check in with, with Sal and Kitty and say that, like, their whole scene and interaction, I felt so bad for both of them. Oh, Sarah Drew. She's so good. She's so good. You I wish just... she was in more things. She's so earnest and she's so sweet and she just loves Sal and I just... She, she needs does. tending. She does need tending. That's such a wonderful line. Someone too. tend her. I don't need much, but I just need occasional tending. It's <gasps> so she's so good, and I, 
she's such a good wife and such a good friend. And I think Sal does recognize that. But at the same time, there's always going to be something missing. And her face when she's like, the recognition is coming and she's trying so hard to still be like, yeah, sure. I'm here for you. I praise and love and all that. But like, oh, shit. This is my life. I She was so good. Do you both think she suspects Sal is gay or not? That's how I've read it every time I've seen yeah. it. Yeah. I think, I think that's... I can't come up with any other explanation for her reaction. Because... Mm-hmm. You know, I feel like you can kind of or like maybe I'm projecting. I don't know. I do that. Um, But I feel like you can see that she's like, oh, no, like he's legitimately so excited about this. And this is maybe a little bit more emotional forthrightness than I was. Yeah. Like he's a little too good (laughs) at being Anne-Margaret right now. And he's like really feeling more excited I don't know. It's just something about the way he like had seemed to let his guard down in that moment that she's like, oh, God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, The first time I saw this, I didn't really quite have a clue what it was that let the clients down about the ad or what they didn't, what was missing or what everyone was talking about. But this time... I started, you know, someone's just like, well, it wasn't Anne Margaret. But this time I started thinking, like, is it supposed to have been, like, Sal's direction? Because in the the previous episode, they're talking about, like, it's sex appeal. It's male gaze. It's trying to basically make women insecure because they need to be what men want them to be. But you had it directed by a man who is closeted, who doesn't see women this way. So, and you have this woman who's obviously very attractive, who's got presence, who frame by frame matches the original. Um, and admittedly, even though she isn't Anne Margaret, I was like, is it because he doesn't have he doesn't see women that way? Because they're because they even even was it Harriet? They're just like I don't know what it is, but there's something there. It's exactly what the clients asked for. The clients admit it's what exactly what they asked for, but they weren't getting what they wanted and it's roger who says it's not Anne margaret right that's his comment mm, i think so our, our ladies man man's man man about town <sighs> um, that guy no i i like that read yeah. a lot although my initial take was you should have listened to peggy when there's that cut True. with that look on her face that she gives them as as she's leaving like it's quick but there's like a mm. told you so like look on her face right as she leaves the, the meeting room. Yeah. Hmm. Also good. I guess I shouldn't say that, like, it wasn't Sal's direction because Don tells him he's a director. Like, we don't know what Don knows about commercial directing. <laughs> True. But we do know what Don knows about Sal. Speaking of protecting people mm-hmm. through his own integrity, ethic, code, whatever. I did love that. I liked it, too, because I didn't, I hadn't put myself in Sal's 
uh, point of view with what's happening to his job. And once he said that, I was like, oh, my God, I feel like we have also neglected Sal's emotions. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like, not everything is about boys, Melissa. Some things are about paying the bills. (laughs) Some things are about our life's work. Um, So I was just like happy that that just seemed like a little note, you know, as long as the issue wasn't his direction, but it seemed like a little note of like, okay, everybody, don't worry. Sal's all good. Like, just just don't try to make him make women super appealing to men because he has no idea. It was a nice moment. I like it when when Don just kind of casually supports people when they're not like posturing and trying to be something that they're not. They're just doing the work. It is one of the things I do like about Don. Yeah. Yeah. Don was a good boy in this episode. I'm not going to lie. He's a good boss. <laughs> Let's not go overboard here. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> but I, I think I, I don't, I, I agree. But the interesting thing too is that if Don does things to see like externally because it's like what he wish someone had said to him, it's kind of interesting because like, he is good at he can be supportive, whether it's with Sal here or or Peggy in the past or even Peter. But if it's it he has to get some kind of buyout out of it too, right? Like I don't and that's not to say I think it's malicious, but if we're talking about this whole theme of like validation and, you know, being fear of afraid of dying and the power our parents or our families of origin or whatever have on us still, even as we grow up and try and run away from them. Um, yeah. Like where's that good bot Don boss coming from? And it's like, is it again a way that he is trying to do a thing? Cause no one did the thing for him. I don't know. <sighs> Don, he's our enigma. Well, I'm sure we'll have more to say on him later, but first um i'm looking for a roommate folks um do you know where a good way i can can snag a roommate i'm 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 moving downtown are you clean and considerate maybe don't lie about your entire personality that's the advice that i have (laughs) maybe it was more aspirational the person that peggy wants to be I yes. want to be careless. <laughs> Not careless. I shouldn't say that. Because honestly, Peggy in the ad that she ends up issuing is like more of what I would have said in the first place. But like, that's on me. That's not, you know. It really felt like Joan was like, here's how to get you my perfect roommate. Mm-hmm. It's funny. I thought during that moment when Joan was like improvising an ad, I was just like, Wow. For being, quote, unquote, just a secretary at this ad agency, Joan really knows how to sell stuff. She does. Mm-hmm. She's being wasted managing the office stuff. Oh, we knew that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course. I was just thinking about um, Peggy's mom being like, you're going to be one of those girls. And she says with like this quiet confidence of just like, I am one of those girls. But then when she's trying to fill out her thing, she puts her, she puts Margaret down, which she, who is admittedly her name but it's not who she is and then she's like all these like little fussy boring things in her ad and then another ad where you're like is that you i still don't know and one of the other one of the kind of themes that it kind of it threads through all the storylines that kind of everything goes thematically in this episode and i can't remember if we talked about it last season when um 
Betty went went home when she first found out about her, her dad's first stroke and her relationship with her brother and stuff like that. But like the roles we still play with our parents, even as as kind of adults and dynamics with with siblings. And it's like you can, you know, be 34 and living in a different city and then you go home and it's like you you're 16 again and without realizing it it's kind of like you're some days acting 16 again or at least 18 or definitely not 34 right because like the dynamic changes and the roles that our parents expect us to play and the roles that they expect to play for themselves and again i don't think i don't think that peggy is necessarily the person she was in the second ad, but I don't think she was the person she is solely like in the first ad either. I think that's like who Mm -hmm. she is with her mom Mm. or that's who her background. And again, that idea of we can go away to to school. We can move to different cities. We can move from Brooklyn to, to Manhattan. We can steal a man's identity in the Korean war and, and come back and, you know, be him and cultivate this great career and, and life and family. But like, no matter when, when we leave home, how we leave home, how we leave our parents, who we become and either actively decide to grow into or just, you know, grow into naturally. Um, where we came from always has this power over us and this ability mm-hmm. to completely like unmake us. And I think we're at this stage where Peggy's now moving and she's, trying different different things on and it's like her mother wants her to be one way and i mean i'm oversimplifying this but it's like jones advertising this other kind of like idealized other way and it's like peggy's like well what if i don't want either of those things and like where's the middle um yeah so i think that's what's kind of going on with with peggy's stuff in this episode is kind of like the middle version of this 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 push or pull not this final end point that some of our other characters are at Mm -hmm. yeah and don't necessarily like she she's clearly visibly uncomfortable with all the things that are coming up when she meets this new roommate person but uh i think joan was right when she said you know the right girl could be a really good influence on you grow peggy you know who you are at work figure out who you are outside of work Maybe she is just trying to be in New York down a clown. Like, she won't know until she gets there. <laughs> I really hope that she d- decides to room with this this new roommate. One, because I like the actor. And two, because I really need to know more about why this lady does not like Sailor. <laughs> it's so specific. I know there's a story. I must hear it. I love it. Yeah. So I mostly know this actress from Bones. She was like, I don't even like know specifically where I know her from. I just like like her face and the way her voice sounds. <laughs> she's in a lot of comedies like Neighbors and stuff. Mostly I just remember her as like the quirky lab girlfriend to possibly Francis Daly. What's this? John Francis Daly in Bones where she just occasionally said kind of weird things, but also was like one of the more interesting people. Loki. The casting on the show is so good. She is in super bad. That's why she's the girl that um, Joan Hill dances with at that party. Oh! (laughs) Oh, 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 okay. Yeah, okay. Okay. 
Yeah. Her IMDb actually, is very varied. That's her like actual credited character name in that movie Boo. is Red Blood Girl, which I don't feel super Boo. great about, but uh do better Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg from two thousand and whatever they wrote. So it came out two thousand seven, but they wrote it before. I'd like to be fair, I think they have. But this is not a Seth Rogen podcast. No. <laughs> not yet. <laughs> Oh, Lord. Uh, Peggy's mom, unlike Joan, less encouraging. Oh, th- I hated this. It made me feel so bad. I It, it does make you feel bad. And it also reminds me um, so much about what it was like when I first decided to move to Chicago and, like, people from my hometown started finding out about that because this is, like, the conversation that every single fucking adult had with me. Except for my own parents. Like, my own parents are very supportive, but when I would, like, talk about, like, oh, yeah, I'm, like, getting ready to move to the city, da-da-da. Oh, my God! You're gonna like it there? Why would you do that? That's awful. You know, it's dangerous. Aren't you afraid you're gonna get shot? Everyone wants to just stay in their safe little bubble. Same thing, my... We would visit New York and D.C. a lot from my small hometown because my dad's lived all over the country and all over the world. And, and people would be like, you're not scared to go there. <laughs> like, <laughs> what's what's wrong with you? And it's it's I'm sure it's coming from a place of like fear for her safety and wanting what's best for her. But it comes out in the, just the most hostile, vile kind of way. <laughs> <laughs> Not great. Not great, Mom, Mama Peggy. It felt bad for Anita, though. Yeah, and it was nice to see Peggy and Anita, like, seemingly not at odds like they were back in, in season two mm-hmm. um, with all the, the Father Gill stuff. But uh, I like how their mom was like, oh, you think I'm this person? I don't want this nice TV set anymore. Take it back and being, you know, very very guilty and like dramatic and then Peggy leaves and she turns on the TV that she just said <laughs> to, take, to take back because clearly that wasn't a, a serious gesture it was just said to hurt Peggy um, just emotional manipulation yeah. whatever she can be bought she she still secretly appreciates that Peggy did that for her yeah she just feels guilty about the, how happy she is to have a new TV mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it's a reminder of how stupid you think I am yeah i did like like you said matt i did like anita and peggy because she's still trying to be like you know it's just mom being mom just forget it but also being like you're gonna you're gonna do fine don't worry about her don't let it affect you could you though send mom to manhattan and move in with me instead (laughs) because mom is driving me nuts that was a nice moment was there anything else either of you wanted to touch on in the peggy section or um, I'm disappointed in Kid Cosgrove going along with this stupid prank. <laughs> Don't start putting Ken, Ken on too high of a pedestal now. I know. This I is know what it. you get. This is what you I get. I know it. <laughs> oh, and her sister being like, when Peggy's talking about how she thinks her super's like creeping on her. Oh, don't you like a little attention? Oh, God, you guys all terrible. need to take a fucking breather. Okay. <laughs> You guys are saying a lot of things. <laughs> but it's a man. <laughs> this man does not look how you want him to. <laughs> it's so bad, but that is really funny. Oh, I love that. And I guess the, it, that Joan has that quote 
kind of at the end of her advice about how to write the ad where she's like, don't post it in this office. We all know you here. And again, mm-hmm. just because the idea of like who we are in different rooms and who people are we, are we what we are, who we perceive others think we are, or other, we perceive ourselves as others perceive us or, or however it, it, it goes. But the idea of, of picking an identity or cultivating it or growing into it is, it's a thread, as they say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. So the the hard part of this episode. Yeah. Can't keep dancing around it. So what if Gene Hofstad is one of the best or most accurate portrayals of a grandparent on screen? It feels true. Right? Like that like mm-hmm. everything from you know his his kind of kind of retrograde out of date attitudes and sensibilities contrasted with the interest and validation that he gives primarily Sally, but we see him sometime with, with Bobby as well in this episode and kind of the... <sighs> with some of the hindsight, maybe, and having seen how Betty came? Yeah, exactly. And, like, I think you're exactly right on there with the extra special care, attention, or validation that he seems to, that Gene seems to be putting in his relationship with Sally. Um which then he can say something cringe. But like still in his intent there is like that idea of disappointments and expectations and again like who we are to our parents and who our parents are to us and you know all that stuff that we kind of saw with with Horace seniors and juniors. I think you can definitely transpose to to Gene and Betty and then how he treats Sally Gene treats Sally as a result. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sally is definitely his favorite now. And you can tell by the way that like Betty reacts to her father that she was the favorite. She you know, she was the girl. She was his little girl. But now he's trying to talk to her like an adult and she's incapable of doing it because he probably protected her too much. Mm-hmm. Um perhaps like he regretted how his wife talked to Betty when they were younger. Um, and you can see that in the way, hold on, let me find it, where he would say to Sally things like, you know, you can really do something. Don't let your mother tell you otherwise. Or you can, you know, you're smart. It's like, oh, that's actually really sweet. And I suspect that that's not how he talked to Betty when she was a Mm -hmm. little girl. I just am, I'm kind of frustrated. And I mean, we can see clearly because you just explained why. Like, as much as I understand why... Betty doesn't want to talk about the estate and funeral planning, the titular arrangements, because it upsets her. And she has this established relationship with her dad in which she doesn't have to do things Mm -hmm. that upset her. Um, It's frustrating to watch her continue to do that after she was so aggressive about wanting to be involved with her dad's care. Mm-hmm. So it's like, okay, but I thought this is what you wanted. Like, I'm not saying, and I'm not, I don't mean aggressive in like a negative way. And I don't mean this next thing I'm about to say in like a negative way. Oh, now I can't even remember what that thing was. Cause I wanted to <laughs> give a disclaimer. Um, I guess I just want to say like, I don't understand. I mean, I do understand, but it's like frustrating to me that she was so 
upset about not being involved in the care in the decision makings about his care but now she's so upset because he has he has the audacity to want to like talk to her about the logical end of that Mm -hmm. care like that's petty come on Mm -hmm. like you wanted this and i want and i think i'm i'm just a little disappointed too because like i wanted her to want to be like a full adult in her dad's eyes it felt a little bit like that's maybe what it was coming to i don't know maybe not because she was acting pretty childish when her brother was there Mm -hmm. but um her dad's also not respectful of her judgment even though he is right about don uh that's He's not very nice to Betty about it. So it's like, of course, she doesn't want to talk to you about any of this. You're like very rude to her about her decision making. Mm -hmm. So if you don't trust my judgment, then you don't get to hear about it. (laughs) Yeah, there is a moment where he says, you know, I shielded you from the dangers out there. That's probably why you married that joker. And Don does the same thing to Betty that he did. Just basically telling her, like, don't worry about it and hampering her ability to step up and be that adult and i'm not saying it's not completely in her hands but she has been i guess sabotaged this whole time on being able to handle it and knowing what to do or at least how to figure out how to do it and it's so much emotionally and i don't i think it's pretty clear that she's not someone who was taught or allowed to feel things because when you see how Sally reacts to everyone laughing and her grief and how upset she is and how, you know, she's not old enough to understand just how complicated and probably a little bit of a relief some of this is for the grownups. Betty just says, stop it, you're being hysterical. And you're like, you know what, you know, you know, Betty has heard that so many times in her life. She heard it about her mother um, passing and now she's the one saying it. It's it's just kind of frustrating to see this kind of behavior being passed on as well because we've seen how it affected Betty. Yeah. But I think it's clear that Gene absolutely adored his daughter and was probably a lot harder on William. Um, even though we saw how Gene treated Bobby and Sally differently. <laughs> Bobby's, Bobby's whole thing about how peaches give him a rash made me laugh so hard but your sister likes them and at the same time like i I definitely think that like gene views his relationship with sally as a potential Mm do-over um but i can definitely pick up what we're saying here though like in the extension of like even that interaction with the peaches like your sister likes them so we're getting them like man up bobby basically or look at all the my war trophies and just like how he relates to both of them still mm-hmm. is very coded in what he feels like their gender identities are as, as Bobby being, being the boy and, 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 and Sally being, you know, the girl and whatever. So even though like it is a do over, he's still practicing a lot of the same, the same things I can imagine. Whereas like, mm-hmm. again, William doesn't read to me on screen as like alpha male, like say someone like, you know, Don Draper would, would read to me on screen but like that's probably how he was reared and where some of William's resentment comes from too. And then not even and then yeah, he resents Betty for, you know, moving being able to move away and like whatever. But uh yeah, it just kind of goes back to I guess that earlier thing about 
the portrayal of a grandparent where it's like, yes, you have the benefit of hindsight, but you're still yourself with your own kind of biases and everything else. So mm-hmm. Poor Bobby. Well, he's um, going to be the middle child soon, too. Oh, I felt so bad for him, too, when uh, Grandpa Gene was showing him like all his little knickknacks and his medals and like hey this is a hat a helmet from a prussian soldier it still has dried blood on it from the guy oh, i killed awful. that like i was super with don he's like please take the dead man's hat off but at the same time I, he put poor bobby this little baby bobby in the position where one's like take the helmet off the other one's like keep it on and you're like you're putting him in this position where he has to choose one of you and it's so unfair i get you don't like don yeah. but come on well, and yeah, and then Bobby's stuck in this like proxy war, but or not pro- even proxy, just this like war, but war between them. And even like Don's uncomfortableness comes from wanting to, you know, protect his son and raise him up. But based on his own his own experiences, Korea, and like again, take off the dead man's hat. Excuse mm. me, sir, you took a dead man's name. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Don and his sense of integrity again. Right. Um. I did enjoy Don's very smooth, very casual uh, fathering when he just, like, yanked the hat off of Bobby's head. Didn't even say anything. Like, That's I a told power. you That's both. That's an alpha move. And the kid's not having that. But also, and I don't even have kids, and I know that people get pissed about this, but, like, just because you're the grandparent doesn't mean you get to make parenting decisions. Like, Don mm-hmm. said he couldn't have that. <laughs> this is not your house, Gene. I'm sorry. Was that the um, the new baby's crib in the attic next to where yep. Grandpa yep. Gene was sleeping? All right. Yep. Just making sure. Yep. Yep. But the episode ends on this nice kind of, you know, tableau of Don between Gene's mm-hmm. cot that he just folded up and the new baby crib. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Don doing his Captain America pose. Uh. <laughs> That's what I call it, where he's got like the silhouette, the shirt, good shoulders. I mean, the whole show is constantly a state of like the legacy we've left behind, kind of like the emotional and um, I don't want to say spiritual, but psychological will that w- yeah. of what we leave the people after us. It gets a little heavy handed sometimes. I mean, we actually talked about a literal will this time yeah who lives just... who dies who tells grandpa Jean's story mm-hmm. <laughs> um i chuckled a bit to myself at the episode title when i was like oh the arrangements of what happens to grandpa Jean when he dies and where will peggy live <laughs> <laughs> it both equally important <laughs> same emotional weight definitely <laughs> The arrangements we have with our parents, who we are, who they are. It is like a very grown up. It it it, it almost is like a very grown up threshold where you become very aware of your parents' wishes. I think. Oh, it's definitely. I think a responsible and like necessary step, and like something that my parents have always said when they're they're all their parents are are deceased now. But uh, my my one my grandparents said to my parents that they were, we're giving this to you we're doing all this work it's like a gift and like i think it's probably one of the the greatest gifts you could probably give someone is then taking away kind of all that as they are grieving not having to do the funeral arrangements or figure out or figure out what mom or dad would have wanted like that's mm-hmm. 
it is a gift. Mm-hmm. Have we ever talked about Scandinavian death cleaning? Um, <laughs> no, but I've seen Midsummer. <laughs> Related to our pre-recording Midsummer talk. Actually, it's not related at all. Um, I could have sworn we've talked about this before, but it's um, something I think I learned about when I was looking into like the minimalism and the Marie Kondo thing of life. Like I got rid of half my clothes a couple years ago, which was actually really nice, except I have not refilled any of my clothes and my wardrobe is still leggings and a couple of dresses. But like Scandinavian death cleaning or something like that. It's when someone who is older goes through all their stuff, gets rid of everything that they no longer really need. They take like the sentimental things and they actually it's basically a last will testament kind of thing of their estate. But but long before they actually die. So like this is a really important thing. This is sentimental to me. I give it to my daughter, my granddaughter, whatever. And it sounds like it should be like really morbid and sad and somber, but it's kind of like meant to be a joyful thing because it's like mm-hmm. I'm doing this so that you don't have to worry about the arrangements, about getting rid of things, about figuring out where everything goes after I die. You can spend all your time just mourning me, basically. And you'll be like prepared for it, like maybe a little more prepared emotionally and you won't have this extra burden of figuring things out when you're making all the arrangements and things. It's kind of neat. Yeah, it is neat. I kind of like that. I know that there's like books and stuff about it that people find like creepy and comforting. Mm-hmm. Both. <laughs> Death is creepy and comforting. It's yes. fair. Uh, it should be noted that Andy and I watched Midsummer today. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, actually, no, that does kind of relate because there's that whole thing of you know, being a part of a circle. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's, Rituals I guess, of life. Yeah. Macabre gifts, yeah. if you will. Yes. That's how we will put it for anyone who hasn't seen it and who may still want to see it. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> I guess it's on that similar thought process, but less extreme. Oh, dear. <laughs> I don't know if we mentioned this or maybe I tuned it out. The little moment when Don gets up before he goes to the attic to fold up the cot when he like checks in on Sally. Oh, oh the favorite child. Well, also the one that like really threw a fit and did not get any comfort. Yeah. So it's like a, on one hand, it's like a little too late. But like on the other hand, it's like, well, at least you remembered her and that she may be having a hard time sleeping today. Yeah. <laughs> no one did go give her a hug. <laughs> The bar is no. literally on the fucking ground for Don. Yeah. As it so often is. Yeah. Whenever he actually <laughs> is able to clear it. Um, no, and Sally's holding the rise and fall of the Roman Empire, oh. which she was reading to her her, her grandpa Jean last episode. Oh. Um, and it's just, again, so it has that sentimental value, but like thinking about our lives as the Roman Empire and it's his has fallen and you know anyways and there's there's this crib beside his dead bed as as a baby is coming which is like the rise in our lives like seasons of life and yeah no again maybe it's 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 about as subtle as a horseshoe falling over in whatever that was like I've heard that was season one I think maybe episode three episode (laughs) four something like that um but it still works for me so thank you madman as does that that my other favorite tableau 
from the episode where Sally's just lying down, has been rejected comfort, you know, no, and is lying down watching TV. And then you see um, the four adults in, in the kitchen and it just freezes. And it's like this kind of if Norman Rockwell's Saturday evening post portrait covers were like real and realistic and not this idealized, you know, life. It's just like, no, this is the emotion in that image is, is real as opposed to the, the Rockwellian, but Mm. Well, so was there anything else? I know we have we have some other stuff and points in the notes. I don't think we've we've hit yet, so I can't think of a good segue. So please, the floor is yours. For what? For which one? Oh, we, we haven't really talked about the outside yet. So sorry that that's my fault. My my notes weren't weren't clear. I meant after the policeman comes up. That, oh, like, they leave her outside, outside <laughs> after she yes. after she knows. Yeah. That that after the, the the cop has come and said that he collapsed at the market, um, and they, and he says, "What do you want us to do with his body?" And then Betty has him in the house, and they like, they close the door and leave the child who just had the same shock that she did, literally outside. And then that follows through again with the stuff we were just just talking about, mm-hmm. um, in terms of like a child grieving, not probably sensibly probably for. The first time is being, you know, able to kind of understand more. And we don't know how long, I can't remember how long ago her grandma died. But it, I meant it was more that instead of, you know, coming in and giving her a hug or whatever, they leave her outside. That was more what I yeah. meant, not when the, the mm-hmm. cop pulls up. Sorry, that's my fault. I wasn't clear enough in the, the But notes. that's also true. They do do that. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's almost like they're dismissing that she's going to feel something or that she's a part of it or that her feelings can be super real. Maybe even dismissing that her bond with Grandpa Jean was could possibly compare to how the adults felt with him in so short a time. Sally. So much of Mad Men is kind of, as we kind of track Sally through the seasons, it kind of feels like she's creating this uh, box of her own hair. Like, so we see Don going back to his office and, and we mentioned it before pulling out. He still has the box that Adam gave him, the one that, that Pete Alt tried to undo him with. Um, back in season one and he's going through these these pictures these these ghosts these these memories in a lot in a box that's in a locked compartment in his desk which again maybe it's the shoe it's the horseshoe falling over and the luck falling out again but um the ghost that he keeps locked away inside and it kind of feels like sally is starting to amass things like that um and if you're interested in ghosts being locked in mental boxes in the mind, I highly recommend the 2019 film Doctor Sleep. It's October. Watch it. It's good. Thank you. <laughs> An official plug. Do you think maybe that they were also leaving Sally outside because they're quote unquote protecting her from the hard feelings? Again, underestimating how deeply she would have felt the the sadness and grief. I think so. I think that's a that's a assessment it mm. feels almost less like underestimation and more like blatantly refusing to acknowledge that she would have any feeling you know mm-hmm. like it's not like they're like oh i bet sally's sad but she'll ultimately be fine i feel like they're like sally doesn't care not sally doesn't care but just like just like not even giving any thought to the fact that like sally would have a feeling about this mm-hmm. you know yeah, but 
it's just so it just breaks my heart because she's clearly just old enough at least just old enough to to fully comprehend what's happened well neil and seemingly one of the the only adult within her immediate family that was even giving her anything close to the kind of attention or validation that she was needing is now dead and like we've talked about no one is willing to give her a hug or even talk to her about it right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. melissa <laughs> yes. as as our newbie how do you feel about this turn that it's taken with sally as such a prominent character oh my god i love it were you expecting like, it at all um not really not really because it seemed like sally was only was getting like one or two like big moments a season prior to this and now she's had big moments in like at least the last two episodes but I could see why when they realized they had such a talented child actor on their hands they were like oh Sally's gonna be doing things (laughs) um because like I will never give get over like her speech about like he's really really gone and nobody cares so strong such a strong performance Kieran and Shipka and I just like I think it's gonna be I think it's interesting to pull her more forward also because um you get such a you get to compare because we talk a lot about how like Betty and Don process their emotions so we get to compare like a younger generation but then also like compare Sally's emotions like back to her parents because we've spent so much time talking and thinking about that. So I think that there's like a lot of really interesting stuff that can come from them pulling her more to the forefront. And like that's I like that. All those things interest me. And I think Karen and Shipka is great. So I like it for that reason. But it's also just so much better than when uh, TV shows start and a couple has kids and then eventually the kids are just like disappeared. (laughs) from the show (laughs) it's like uh remember when they had kids and it's like oh yeah when the show started they thought it was going to be kids and now it's not kids (laughs) it turns out the kids are going to grow up (laughs) and become people what that sally scene and this is a bit of an aside but what that sally scene really kind of reminded me of this is the second time i will invoke a a mike flanagan project on this podcast um but it's that moment in the haunting of hill house where it's like the two storms episode Mm -hmm. and now as the kid kind of goes missing like she's still in the house but like for a reason the house and the the ghosts are like preventing her family from finding her and when she's revealed at the end she's upset and she's crying and like this moment always breaks me in the same way that this episode did and now was like i was right here i was screaming and shouting and none of you could see me and that's Mm. and that's what i'm feeling from sally in this episode and then i like talking about like you know spectrums or whatever and at the same point, like, that's Horace Jr. who is doing this because he's not feeling seen and not feeling validated. It's it's Betty, it's Pete, it's it's Peggy. It's, it's, like, all of them. So, like, in these moments, like, Sally is having, we never quite get over them or, like, they have this way that kind of, it impacts us forever. And, we're and like, our parents are just people who are also that, like, hurt kid at times and just I don't know life it's complicated we always have that ever-present fear of death 
and the anxieties and that's kind of what Mad Men is and that's kind of what this episode was all about right yeah I guess it just it seems just exploring this theme of what we pass on to the next generation what we carry and our limitations from it it does make it seem like it's kind of futile trying to change and grow and we're all just sort of victims of the past and destined to pass it on again which is kind of a bummer just me no i i hear what you're saying but i think where i think the non potential non-downer part of it is like still like the power of like relationships and dynamics and it's and it's like those those moments of which and I'm not trying very hard not to go like to Galaxy Brain, so I don't know how much of this will will stay in. But like that, those interactions, like we talked about earlier between Don and Sal, mm-hmm. and saying don't don't ruin the only good thing to come of this. You now are our accredited director, and like those, we can still have those positive human interactions and in a sense of community. And that's where the hope and the optimism is. Is it's like still we're all messed up, but we can we can support each other and now my brain is going down arrival territory so i'm again i'm going to galaxy <laughs> brain but like yeah life can be nasty british and short but where the meaning is and the value is is still in our relationships with each other she did uh-huh. it anyways even with like that love that exists i i don't know well i'm galaxy braiding now but i think you're picking up what i'm laying down <laughs> yeah i guess we'll just have to wait and see Bits and bobs. Bits and bobs. Bits and Let's bring bobs. it back down to earth. <laughs> um, I just wanted to shout out in the news that we very casually dropped and then moved away from uh, the self-immolation of a Buddhist monk in Saigon. A man who lit himself on fire in protest against the treatment of Buddhists by the re- by the Catholic regime of President No Dinh Diem barely got a mention Sometimes I get really frustrated with the show doing this where they're just like, here's a real life event. So you know where we are in time. Okay, bye. Because it's one of the catalyst moments that brought us into the Vietnam War. Mm. No big. No big. Yeah, not Um, really something to be casual about. Yeah. Yes and no. Like, I don't... Something that, like... I think about not a lot, but every so often is it's it's like, what is the role of art to teach history and more like reflecting and and it's like it like you can make like you can make a reference or check it like that and like if you're familiar with with the period and kind of what's about to happen in the world and I mean the show is primarily con- concerned with you know domestic america seemingly like to this point but like it's it's like these little things of like hints of like what's to come mm-hmm. like like i get the show doing it because at the time the events actually yeah. per were like throwaway moments and you don't mm-hmm. in the moment like what when you were talking about all the pandemic stuff before it happened it was just like oh a thing that was happening over there that's not i think almost all of us yeah. were just like it's not gonna touch us that sucks for them I think it's just something that I occasionally just get tired of with the show in that it's just like, here's the thing. 
And I know we live in our own little bubbles and our little own microcosm of a universe and the bigger outside stuff don't affect it directly most of the time. I don't know. It's just a personal frustration. I don't actually know how I would fix it. <laughs> well, and it's like, what what events does the show deem historical events, meaning big enough for it to like comment on, right? Like in season one, we, we really sat with the 1960 presidential election mm-hmm. um last season we we had a whole you know theme of episodes around you know the threat of nuclear war and, and the cuban missile crisis um we're in in 1963 now and you know of, of events that happened in 1963 why will it why does it comment on events that are are I'm not going to say potentially to come. They happen in history. Why does it sit more with this historical event from 1963 and not this historical event from 1963? So, Mm -hmm. yeah, no, fair enough. Yeah, and it's just going to keep happening. And I guess I'm probably also just not looking forward to Vietnam War talk at all. Um, Followed up by the... So we had that moment we were talking about of, of... Don's Captain America pose at the end immediately cut to like this jaunty we're going off to war and being patriotic song called Over There which did make a resurgence around the which was from I think like World War One type times from Grandpa Jean's time uh, it did apparently make a resurgence in the Vietnam War so that's a thing oh one more thing I did actually want to to bring up sorry this thing's gonna be so long no um one thing that I feel like failed to get brought up during the whole highlight talk is the fact that it is a Mexican sport and the guy the main guy that Horace wanted to like be the face of highlight handsome man that he was maybe maybe Horace was a tiny bit in love with him mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. was a, I believe Mexican patchy that his name i gotta look it up now uh and the fact that his father did call him a racial slur but we're like yeah okay cool you're just gonna try to bring this sport about into america and that's gonna work okay why cool. would you even do that to those people like none of the people who play highlight deserve this no i mean we already had a whole thing where like uh, we already have a whole thing in sports where a lot of minorities are being basically exploited for Uh the entertainment of the masses let's just add to it some more just to add to horace's like fun white privilege don't remember if highlight is something that we will hear from again um yes i have one silly bit uh i need to know i'm desperate to know who did sally's ballet bun because it that was, was perfect. A professional grade ballet bun, and that girl got ready at school. So huh. who did it? Was her hair down that morning? Uh, it was down in the car oh. when Grandpa Jean told her not to dawdle. You know, I'm just going to assume it was skills. Abigail Spencer. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. She seems like the type. I like it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sally's just going to have to become a thing now. Who did okay. that bun? Now we did it. We did it. Okay, so 
If you would like to get in touch with us, you can email us at stillgreatbob at gmail.com or you can talk to us on Twitter at stillgreatpod. If you like the show and want to support us, you can rate and review the show on your podcatching system of your choice. Thanks, as always, to DJ Empirical for our super groovy theme song. And in the meantime, Matt, where can we find you on the internet? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at at Mattyhugh, M-A-T-T-H-U-G-H. You can find me on my other podcast, Dana Lee Nightly, uh, where we just talk about Jane Austen all the time. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at uh, Pop Artery, P-O-P-A-R-T-E-R-Y. You can find me on Twitter at Mellow Yellow, which is M-E-L-L-O-O-Yellow. It's mostly Machine Gun Kelly currently. Uh, <laughs> go listen to Tickets to My Downfall. And you can find me co-hosting the Wild Pretty Things podcast, where we are gearing up for some spooky episodes for October. Spooky. Yeah. All right, guys, till next time. Hug your kids.